Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello all and welcome back to New Books in Critical Theory, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Louisa Han, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Tina Seeker to discuss her new book, Sex, Consent and Justice, a New Feminist Framework, recently out with Edinburgh University Press. Dr. Seeker is currently a lecturer in Media, Culture and Heritage at the University of Newcastle in the UK. Her current research interests include the ways in which gender and culture intersects with science and technology using food and environmental technologies as case studies. She also has expertise in sexuality studies in the areas of consent, gender-based violence and restorative justice. Tina, welcome to the Critical Theory channel and thanks for joining me to discuss your work. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Great. So I'll just... um, start with just got a few initial thoughts that I had while while reading the book which kind of you know uh, brings together queer and feminist scholarship to consider like pressing questions surrounding justice sex and violence um, and uh, sort of links theoretical assertions to highly publicized cases like uh, the Weinstein scandal or the public storm surrounding Aziz Ansari for example um, and I found the book to be really sort of capacious in scope, but at the same time rigorous and sensitive to the often contradictory and sometimes quite tendentious ideas that um, inevitably, inevitably crop up um, in discourse surrounding sex and justice. Um, and I was interested to read um, a book from an academic press that addressed, addresses these issues because I've read sort of several books from, you know, like trade and radical um, kind of presses that sort of address them in maybe more polemical ways or in ways that are kind of less um, less beholden to such sort of rigorous framework. So I'm thinking um, you might have heard of these of Catherine Angel's Tomorrow's Sex Will Be Good Again, um, Amiya Srinivasan's The Right to Sex. Um, so I think, yeah, the through line, a lot of these sort of work, um, works on women's sex and justice, including yours, really try to kind of grapple with how we approach the sort of inarticulable aspects of desire, often in quite different ways. So uh, with that in mind, could you tell me um, how you came to write the book um, and where do you think it kind of intervenes in ongoing discourses surrounding consent and finding justice for survivors? Yeah, well, thank you. Um, just in terms of the the two books that you noted, uh, two other ones that I think might, might sort of fit in that area is Alison Phipps' Me Not You, The Trouble with Mainstream Feminism, and Aya Gruber's The Feminist War on Crime. Um, and so I, I think all together those books really inspired me, but I did start thinking about consent before I started thinking about consent um, in the framework of sex uh, specifically. And so um, I was doing work on consent in totally different areas. So I was looking at intergenerational consent as it relates to climate change and consent as it relates to science and technology. 
And then um, as I started doing a little bit more of a focused analysis on consent, um, it started moving me in the direction of, of sex and sexuality studies, which then sort of moved into my interest in restorative justice and, and my keen interest in some of the, the ways in which Me Too was constructed and the way it played out uh, in, in social media. And so taken together, um, and, and some of the contradictions, which I'm sure we'll talk about, sort of led me down this path of thinking through um, what consent means in, in the contemporary environment and also what the role of restorative justice is in that context. Right. Yeah, great. I'm sure we'll get into some of those really sort of sticky contradictions. Um, so, so to kind of to dive into the book, often sort of on this podcast, we usually discuss books chapter by chapter or something. I'm going to take a slightly different tack here as this is very much kind of a book of two halves, isn't it? Sort of with the first providing like a concise history of um, like feminist waves and their uh, limitations and um, kind of offering your own framework that offers um, sort of an alternative approach to sex and justice. Um, and then the second half, obviously, you kind of move on to um, applying these notions to kind of real life cases. Um, so I think we'll just start by untangling sort of the key framework um, you built up to in the first half. So that's um, this idea of pleasure and care-centered ethic of embodied and relational sexual otherness. Um, so kind of to get to this, this, to this place, um, you kind of often critique liberal feminism of the Me Too movement to kind of tease out some of the problems with like the popular affirmative consent model that people kind of often um, like defer to when uh, sort of discussing sexual assault. Um, so can you start by kind of explaining some of these problematics that kind of appear in this part of the book? Yeah. And so I, I did go through a kind of historical genealogy of, of consent. Um, and so going through some of that literature um, brought me to to the the drawbacks in premising sexual relations on a consent model. You know, what are some of the contradictions or the stickiness um, in there that, um, you know, it starting from the beginning that um, it's been used in ways that are particularly problematic. If you look around, uh, look to consent around sex work or pornography, um, moral panics in the past, um, which have drawn on feminism to give rise to some of like the most harshest criminal penalties on record. Um, and that when it comes to rape and sexual violence, there is very little uh, survivor satisfaction. There's dismal clear up rates. There's little change in recidivism and, and not a lot of justice. Um, but the consent model itself uh, as a, as a philosophical idea um, with material consequences, you know, does have some problems as it relates to relying on this idea of the self as this capable, governing, liberal self that is autonomous and be able able to give consent in conditions of equitable uh, justice. And, and, and that's not necessarily the case. There are relations of power to consider. There's also this, this idea of consent really replicating the mind-body binary where the body's materiality is divorced from rational action um, and where the body is seen as secondary because it's it's gendered as feminine. Um, that consent is particularly heteronormative um, and relies on a lot of ethnocentric structures 
you know, it's Western heterosexuality by default. Um, and, and then there's also some really troubling connections of the consent model as it relates to its connection to a history where consent was not afforded to particular populations, particularly in the, in the context of, of slavery. Um, and so there's, there's a, a ton of these kind of um, theoretical and historical um, critiques, but it's just this idea that it, it doesn't really account for lived sexual experience um, and that sex is more complex than just a verbal yes or no. And I think that all of those things are, um, you know, I go over in the, in the book, but they're particularly troubling for me, you know, as I was, as I was writing. Yeah. Um, it's great. This, this idea of autonomy that you've just touched on, I think is again, like a really important kind of through line um, in this, in the first part of the book. Um, and kind of, it's a kind of a key note of contention in kind of current debates surrounding Me Too and, and discussion about this topic. Um, it's kind of quite dependent maybe on one's kind of wider political, philosophical, um, p- political philosophy kind of surrounding how structural oppression operates and kind of the extent to which it exists. So you know, queer-oriented, queer-oriented, queer-oriented feminists kind of might veer towards like the Codian critiques of sexual norms, while kind of Marxist um, feminists might be more inclined to critique kind of neoliberal conceptions of self-care and rational rational agency um, surrounding sex. So you kind of work through this problem um, to some extent using the notion of um, embodied relational autonomy. So could you give an overview of kind of what you mean by this and how it generates sometimes helpful critiques of hegemonic norms? Yeah. Um, I, and I would say that, you know, just on top of the consent, um, that that uh, even affirmative consent and enthusiastic consent really uh, don't quite cut it as it relates to perpetuating uh, gender scripts around sexual behavior and how messy embodied sexual communication is. And so those are often offered as, as um, you know, a... a a more superior model or, or one that is more reflective uh, or ideal. Um, but even those have some problems. And so then, yeah, I, I go towards this idea of embodied relational autonomy. Um, and I use part of that um, in my uh, new model, but I still go back to the, the problematic of autonomy as being a very liberal uh, framework in terms of assuming that the self is devoid of any forces of power or any inequalities um, and inequalities that are not just gendered, but also connect to race and class and, and disability and other, other, other intersections. And so we are not all autonomous, you know, um, individuals capable of exercising free will um, in any way that we please. Uh, and so even then, if we are saying, okay, let's let's keep the autonomy, but let's make it embodied, it doesn't quite um, it doesn't quite pull away from the central problematics that I identify. Right, yeah. Um, so in the kind of in the in the third chapter, um you kind of move on from that discussion to talk about some of the injunctions that, sort of emerged in online communities. Um, so I'm thinking about the kind of 
the Believe All Women slogan, for example, sort of in the wake of Me Too. Um, so could you kind of expand on this, touching on kind of the limitations um, of online feminism, but also how it encompasses um, some of the primary, te- primary tensions surrounding carceral approaches to sexual crime and shines a light on intersectional critiques of Me Too? Yeah, I was really interested in how Me Too was replicating a lot of the earlier sex wars around around gender and, and, and sex that you would see in the 70s and 80s, where you would have um, a, an idea of liberal feminism that would be used to justify further incarceration and, and, and more, more carceral forms of justice. And, and that was the case um, as it relates to even things like, you know, prostitution, as it was called then, or to pornography. Um, and it, it was something that I was seeing ca- happening again with, with Me Too, that even there, though there was this professed um, fidelity to justice uh, and to Black Lives Matter in particular, uh, when it came to forms of justice in practice, it was always in the form of more carceral kinds of, of justice, so more policing, harsher, harsher penalties, and that structural determinants of, of violence in particular were just not being addressed. Uh, and so that was what, what I was really um, interested in. And so I found that a lot of the feminism that was taking place online was quite um, quite post was very post feminist was very sort of white liberal feminism, and that it replicated a lot of those those problems in, in the past. and And I found that a lot of the literature around um, indigenous practices and um, ones that are coming out of more progressive political environments in the states and Australia and Canada offered some uh, alternatives to how to go forward and that some of the professed um, objectives of Me Too that I was seeing in online spaces would be better met um, with a different approach to justice and also to sexual relationality. Mm. Yeah, so I'd like to touch a little bit more on that um, sort of restorative justice idea now um, as this forms um, kind of a really strong basis for, you know, alternatives to punitive approaches um, that kind of often uh, reinforce structural inequalities. So could you give listeners an kind of firstly an overview of what restorative justice actually means? Um, uh, it's links to Indigenous practices um, and how it might help us overcome certain impasses that um, kind of often crop up when addressing sexual assault cases. Yeah, Um well, what I what I start with was um, my my interest in in restorative justice. You know, in terms of it really feeling like that was the best model or approach came out of when I was um, putting together that sort of new definition of sexual ethics in the earlier part of the book, the the care centered ethic of embodied and relational sexual otherness, where you know it's about um, mutual pleasure, care for the self, and other. Um, queer practices, um, ethic of communication and respect for the other, um, and that it is is inherently embodied, uh, that a lot of those philosophical precepts were really part of restorative justice. 
And so, um, you know, it is really moving things away from a punitive framework that the criminal justice, you know, in quotes system um, that is really focused on punishing the perpetrator and removing them from society. Restorative justice is really about involving all parties, um, perpetrators, victims, community members, uh, and then coming together to think about what an appropriate way to restore community to wholeness would be. Uh, And so it's, you know, about accountability, about repair. um, And it is based on a lot of a lot of evidence of its success in practice, you know, reintegration, um, making the the offender accountable, um, and, and about sort of a community basis and that getting to the roots of sexual violence in the course of doing that. And so it's about doing justice in a very unequal society where it, um, the victim survivor and their effective concerns are taken into consideration. And so indigenous um, groups have been using this approach for generations in New Zealand, Australia, and Canada. Um, and in, in Canada in particular, they've been used in cases of intimate partner violence um, and in universities and really as part of integration. And so there are a lot of cases where it, it seems like, you know, if we're really looking at what Me Too is trying to do and what feminists want out of, you know, in, in, in trying to abolish gender-based violence is um, perhaps what is what we're doing is just just not working and that a, a different model is possible. Mm. So I think we should sort of spend a little time um, digging into kind of the specifics of your case studies a little bit now, um, which kind of apply this kind of ethical framework that we've been discussing to quite high profile cases. Um, so obviously we're getting, I think we're getting a bit more used to seeing coverage of, you know, survivors going public with um, stories of, like they're particularly their famous abusers. So, um, you know, you've probably had quite a, there are quite a few examples you could have examined. So could you tell us sort of how and why you chose, um, firstly, which ones you chose and um, the five cases that, and, and why you chose the five cases that you chose to explore in the book? Yeah, um, it was it was an interesting exercise because there was actually a, um, I think the Washington Post, as well as as another activist, had put together um, separately um, a sort of spreadsheet of all the people in high profile areas that had been um, that that had sort of been quote unquote me tooed, which is the language mm-hmm. that they used. Um, and so I was going through that um, and thinking about you know what would make some interesting case studies that were the most insightful. And I did want to touch on issues of race. I wanted to touch on issues of class um, and uh, celebrity as well. And so I, I chose based on, on things that I think would apply to and, and really unearth all of those dimensions. And so it just turned out that, okay, what are the ones that there would be an eyebrow raised if I didn't talk about them? So, of course, um, Bill Cosby uh, you know, which I talked about in the methodology, but also Harvey Weinstein and Aziz Ansari. And there was like a huge disparity between, um, uh, between the two cases. And then there was also a lot of comparisons that were, were made between the two cases. 
Uh, and then I wanted to um, also talk about the Gian Gomeshi case because it was one that um, I followed when it started in Canada. <clears throat> uh, and then I thought, you know, um, because a lot of academic audiences would be uh, reading it, that the Avatar Ronell one would be interesting as well. And so there was also this issue of queerness that was um, wrapped up in that also. So yeah, it just turned out that those, those I thought like, okay, there's, there's some really interesting stuff there. Yeah, yeah, I was I was quite struck by the kind of the scope of all of them. And I could kind of see, I guess, why you chose them and sort of the differences and the tensions between them. So yeah, as you mentioned, the Ronell case was like, I'm not sure, you know, outside of kind of academic audiences, how many people would have heard about it. I think it was covered in um, sort of media. Um, but yeah, what's interesting about it is sort of the number of, uh, you know, like queer identified scholars who were kind of willing to jump to her defense and kind of wrap their defenses around like established queer theoretical frameworks, I suppose. Um, uh, so I'm wondering whether this kind of affected your discussion of the potentialities and the limitations of, of queer theory and kind of your earlier theoretical chapters and how, you know, restorative justice may have offered sort of better ground for a pair than through the, the university systems that it was kind of that went through. Yeah, it was, that was a, a case that I found really interesting because it sort of tested the limits of, of um, what is permissible within a supervisor-supervisee relationship um, of labor, you know, even as it, as it relates to right, um, Nimrod Reitman um, as the grad student was um, said that it was taken advantage of in relation to the amount of labor it was, expect, um, it was uh, expected to, to undertake. Um, and then the idea of Ronell as being queer and a feminist and then Reitman as being gay. And so it was a strange thing where it's this idea that the discourse was that um, the relationship was not being judged properly because it was being judged using a heteronormative lens and that we needed to have a more expansive understanding of queer sexuality. And I found that really interesting. And that idea that Ronell talks about is like, it's a hyperbolic gay dialect and that it's just a different way of relating. And so, you know, it took me down a, a, a tunnel of this, you know, labor faced by graduate students, how, you know, how close of a relationship with a supervisor could you have? And then I was like, okay, yes, um, this, this model, it did, it did, the university did, did um, suspend Ronell without pay. Uh, she was found guilty of sexually harassing um, Reitman. But uh, it just seemed like there was so much harm done, even through that case. And there was so much back and forth in terms of that he said, he said she said, dynamic of um, expectations of, um, and then there's a lot of media contact as well uh, that um, I didn't find even the discussions that Reitman had afterwards that there was very much, there was any repair or any, any resolution. Uh, and so I think that if there was a way for um, you know, having a, a healing circle or a kind of way for Reitman to have his voice heard, which was the most important thing to him, that there might have been a much better way of, of 
reaching a resolution. Mm. So let's kind of move on to the Zizanzari cases. Again, this is um, definitely one of the cases which was treated as occupying a kind of um, a grey area. Um, could you kind of touch on some of the uh, the problematics that seem to make this case so murky, and and what we can what we can learn from them? Yeah, one of the things that <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things that really struck me with the Ansari case is that he's a um, identified as a feminist, and so I a, a lot of the conversations online that were being held afterwards about the case were that. People were so disappointed because they thought he was different. So it's this, and and the the persona that he had as being, you know, a little sort of goofy, uh, as well. Um, that I think that that there was a lot about a lot invested in him as a celebrity, and then just the grayness of the case where you had this woman who um, had this really terrible encounter with him, you know, felt taken advantage of, felt pressured, felt um, that his behavior was just not acceptable. Um, and that, and that she made that known, you know, when she when she left, but the article itself um, was really this, this uh, sort of salacious, there's not a lot in the way of journalistic integrity in the article either. But it really narrowed down into the question of, you know, if there is a really complex case of a date that goes terribly, where the person is just pressuring you for sex, is that a bad date? Or is that uh, sexual, a form of, of gender-based violence. And um, so there was a lot of back and forth on, you know, it, did she just have a terrible time? She could have left at any time. Why didn't she just get up and leave? Why didn't she, you know, do, do any of that? And so I, I came to the conclusion that while it, the whole event didn't, um, it did violate a lot of the principles of sexual ethics that I talk about in the book, that it's probably the best case of uh, an example of where restorative justice might have been possible. If you look at Ansari's, um, his apology, if you look at um, any of his political perspectives, that it might have given an opportunity for an apology, for some reflection on his own misogyny and internalized sexism, the harms that were caused, um, and that, you know, that might have been a better way to go about it than having this massive thing in the, in the media, which did not do anything in terms of pushing um, just solutions forward. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I could see how that kind of restorative um, framework was definitely applicable in that kind of in that case specifically. Um, obviously, maybe there are kind of you touched on some kind of limitations perhaps for sort of the Weinstein scandal. Could you kind of expand on that a little bit? Yeah, that one was difficult to write because it was just, mm. there was no no way to make a case for restorative justice in that framework. I think though, there is a way to envision, you know, if, if his behavior was brought to the fore, fore earlier on, 
that a restorative approach mm-hmm. might have and, and community connection might have been a way to address and, and to stop some of the, the later um, assaults and, and sexual violence from occurring. Um, but it is one of those models where restorative justice, a lot of the questions always come to, you know, but like, you know, what if they're, they're not, um, they need to be punished or like taken out or what if there's like, you know, a rapist walking around and I'm always like, there already is like, do you know what, <laughs> how low the rates are of clear up? It's just astonishing. So it's this idea of, you know, if you're trying to allow the person harmed to gain resolution and for the person who's doing the harming to find a way to repair that harm and also to better themselves because they are going to be quote unquote on the streets at some point um, that it's, it's better to deal with the structures of harm and to do that kind of community healing. And that if that was introduced earlier, that perhaps um, a lot of the the later events would not have happened. And, and so I think that even in looking, when I was reading some of the media interviews of, of the women after, there was still not a sense of resolution um, or happiness about any of this. And the same with Cosby, who has now been, um, is now out, so. Mm, yeah. Um, so I think to kind of wrap up, um, sort of discussion of the case studies, I'd just like to go um, to the John Gameshi case because mm-hmm. um, I, I hadn't actually really heard much about it. Maybe it's because I'm in the UK, I'm not really sure. But um, yeah, I'm interested in kind of the sort of racial aspects of that case that you explore. Um, I'd just like you to hear um, a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah, that was a really interesting case. And, and it, it turned out even after the event... After my writing of this, uh, a friend of mine contacted me and did have a, a a violent but you know quick encounter with uh, Gomeshi, um, and that she she sort of was was just like you know I needed to to tell someone that this was that this this did happen with him particularly a number of years ago. And um, I did, you know, myself hear a lot about um, a lot of sort of whispers about Gomeshi, but he was, yeah, a a very well-known media um, interviewer, particularly around music. He had a very um, high-profile show in in Canada, and he was... um, he was uh, charged, and he it, the case did go to trial, but it was with um, being violent in, in sexual encounters, so um, slapping and choking in particular. And uh, women did come out, a number of them, and say that you know he had done that to them. It was without consent. And uh, the the discussions around race I found really interesting because it didn't come up. He's Iranian uh, Canadian. Uh, and, and so he's brown and, uh, I, I found that really interesting because he became a flag bearer for, uh, racialized Canadians doing well. And he became sort of the model minority, um, you know, the, the, like, look how, how far Canada has gone type of discourse. And so, um, it was interesting that a lot of the media coverage, didn't talk about race very much. And when it did, 
it was the right saying that, why are you going after a racialized person? And so it was in defense of him. Uh, and so I, I look through um, sort of the politics of the model minority, of belonging, of race in Canada in particular. And so I, I did want to kind of highlight that as part of the analysis. Mm, yeah, great. Thank you for that. So I think we've we've covered, covered quite a lot of ground here. So I'm just going to kind of wrap up and ask you to tell us a little bit about um, what you're working on at the moment. Yeah, I'm working on a, a few things. I'm working on a grant right now, um, which will look at alternative forms of sexual justice. Um, and it, uh, we put it in, so hopefully it gets funded, but it'll go through and, and talk to victim survivors of sexual violence to put forward a potential um, model of sexual ethics, sort of to test the model that I put forward and to talk to them about alternative violence and do and, and alternative justice and, and some of the, the alternatives they might envision. Um, and then I'm also in some of my other research um, working on uh, some of my work in, in, in science. And so I'm looking at some, some stuff around health apps and superfoods, which is sort of my other area of research. And so I'll have a book with Bloomsbury coming out um, in maybe eight months or so um, with them as well. So, yeah. Okay, great. It's a nice, like, diverse set of uh, <laughs> projects. Um, so thank you for joining me, Tina. Um, hope to have you back on the NBN again in future, maybe for your uh, upcoming book. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Thank you.